If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Back before there were podcasts, and I know many of you find it hard to believe that we can go that far back, but back before there were podcasts, we had these things called cassette tapes. And uh, when I was a young preacher, younger preacher, uh, we all of us got tapes. We would. There were actually places that you uh, they had libraries, and you could order different speakers, Bible teachers, and we would order them, and then we would swap them around and listen to them. Uh, it was a way of of learning the Bible, as I said before. The podcast came along. One of my favorite speakers then was a fellow by the name of uh, Howard Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary, and he had a he had a really quick wit. He had a keen sense of humor, and he was just a delight to listen to. And I remember uh, one Bible study that he had. And he told of a student who came to him one day all excited. And he said, Dr. Hendricks, he said, I got a question that's going to blow you away. And Dr. Hendricks said, what? He said, I've got a question to end all questions. He said, I mean, it's going to just blow you away. And Hendricks said, man, whoop it on me. And so he said, okay. He said, Jesus was God, right? And Dr. Hendricks said, yes. He said, which means he was omniscient as God. Yes. So he said, he knew, he knew everything about the men that he chose to be his disciples. Yes. And he said, why did he choose Judas? And Dr. Hendricks said, oh, that's not, that's not a big question. And the student said, what? Dr. Hendricks said, no, no, that's not a big question. He said, I've got a question that's much, much more difficult to answer than that. And the student said, what? And Hendrick said, why did he choose you? There you go. Why did he choose you? You ever think about that? Why did God choose you? If you are a believer, you are one of the elect. You've been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Why? What was God's motive for choosing you in grace. Now, of course, we we can't know the motives of other people unless they tell us. And how much less could we know God's motive for doing something unless he tells us. But we've explored the contrast in verses 20 and 21 between the law of God and the grace of God. And the 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 first verse there gives us a motive for the entry of God's law. We, we talked about that a few weeks ago. It says the law came in to increase the trespass. That was God's motive for sending the law. And we said when we looked at that verse that increasing the trespass meant the law increased sin by increasing our knowledge of it and defining for us that which is good. The law increased sin by convicting us of sin, showing us that it is an offense against God, which is also good for us to know. And then 
We said the law provoked even more sin in us, thereby undercovering the true nature of sin. God sent the law so that we would know what sin is. We would realize uh, that knowing the law provokes more sin in us, which means that the law is holy and righteous and good. We are the ones who are depraved. It is mankind that has the sin problem. And all of this opens us up to grace. But now, if, if Paul tells us something of the motive uh, that God had for giving the law, then surely we can know something about his motive for grace as well. That we can understand a bit about that. And then I, I think the text itself encourages it. In the original Greek, the, the so that occurs twice at the beginning of each of these last two verses. So that the law came in to increase the trespass. So that as sin reigned in death. It, it deliberately gives us uh, a contrast and a, a motive. I think it, it marks off the verses explaining why God has given the law and why God has been gracious. He has been gracious for a reason. He has a motive behind it. So I want to look at some motives for grace this morning. The first motive for the superabounding grace of God is stated here in our text that God acted in grace in order, what? To bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason that all redeemed men and women have grace is so that God might act in goodness toward us. God has been good to us. He has given us grace. There is another verse in the Bible that says that exact same thing. It's a quote of Jesus that is found in the third chapter of the Gospel of John and the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Like Romans 5.21, John 3.16 also has a purpose clause introduced by the same Greek word, the Greek word hina. It is in both verses. But in John 3.16, the purpose for grace is expressed both negatively and positively. The negative statement is that we shall not perish. The positive statement is we will have eternal life. Now, there are some people who have said that a motivation, the negative motivation, is unworthy of God, as if the only reason for grace is that a Christian might escape the fires of hell. I personally find that rather a good motivation, for me anyway. Uh, I don't want to go there. I don't want anyone else to go there. But if that were the only reason for grace, that objection might be plausible. But the desire of God to do us good is not unworthy of being mentioned. 
God does not want us to perish. That means God is good. God is good. Do you understand that? That God is good. He is good all the time. That's a good thing. (laughs) Because if God were not good, there would be no hope for any of us. If God were not good, all of us would perish. But the Christian comes to discover this hope. God does not want me to perish. God gave his only son that I might not perish. God wants me to have everlasting life. And God has done something about it. God became a man and came to this earth and died on the cross in the place of sinners like me. That I might not perish, but that I might have eternal life. God grants grace that he might be good to us. That is a motive for grace. God wants to be good to us. The second motive for grace flows from the first. For if God is gracious to us because he is good, it is natural that he acts also in grace so that we in turn might do good. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8, 9, and 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It has been pointed out by a number of Bible commentators and scholars that there is a striking repetition of the word works in verses 9 and 10. The first mention of works is negative. It tells us that because we have been saved by grace through faith, we are not saved by works. We say this over and over again. There are only two religions in the world. Only two. You can categorize them. There are religions of works and grace. There's only one that's grace. That's Christianity. All the rest of them are religions of works. And God says you can't be saved by works. Not possible. You cannot be saved by works. You can't do enough. What we like to do is compare ourselves with others and say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm better than you, than you all, okay? Well, tough. That's not good enough. That won't, that won't cut it, you know? You know, that's like saying, well, Tennessee can beat Bowling Green. Well, what about Alabama? <clears throat> Pardon me. I didn't mean to throw that reference in. Uh, but you... And, and the standard for works is even higher than Alabama, if you can believe that. It's perfection. The reason you cannot be saved by works is because you'd have to have perfect works. Never sinning in thought, word, or deed. No one can do that. No one but Jesus has ever lived that way. So if we could be saved by works, we would boast about it. Here on earth... And in heaven, we would say, well, 
I was saved because I did so and so, you know. I, I or I didn't do so and so, you know. I'm saved because yeah, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. So I'm saved. We boast about it. Not only would we boast about it here, we'd boast about it in heaven. And God has excluded any boasting. Verse nine utterly repudiates works as contributing to our justification in any way. That's where the church at Rome goes terribly, terribly wrong. They say that that grace plus works equals justification. No, 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 no. Grace plus nothing equals justification. Justification is all by the grace of God. And if we imagine that our good works has anything to do with our being right before God, we're not right before God. If you think that your works have added anything to your justification, you are not justified. You are still in your sin and in need of being saved. On the other hand, no sooner had Paul emphasized emphatically and repudiated works as have nothing to do with our justification that he brings works in. And he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is said in such strong, strong language. He says that God prepared in advance for us to do these. So, we are correct in saying as well that if a person claims he is justified but they have no good works, they're not justified. Good works are not the root of justification, but they are the fruit of justification. Good works inevitably follows justification. One reason why God has saved us by grace regardless of any merit on our part, is that we might be enabled to be gracious to others, as God has been gracious to us. And we are to be gracious to others, regardless of any merit on their part. That's hard to do. It's easy to be gracious to people who are gracious to us. It's hard to be gracious to people who despise us, who curse us, who hate us. Yeah, Jesus plainly said, anybody can love people that loves them. That's not a problem. But to love someone who does not love you, to love someone who hates you, that, that is the purview of a Christian. Because God, one of his motives in grace for saving us, is to be good to us that we might be good to others. A third motive for God's grace is stated in another important verse in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has been speaking of the way which God has saved men and women from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds, and brought them together in one new body, the church. Their thereby overcoming all the obstacles that exist, of ethnic obstacles, racial obstacles, socioeconomic obstacles. God brings all of us together as the church. And then he says of God, 
to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. The principalities and powers in the heavenly places are fallen angels. So the text that mean that the text means that one of God's motives for grace was to reveal the wisdom of God to these beings. Now that raises the motivation for God's grace to the cosmic level, beyond merely a human level. How does this principle operate? You remember that when Lucifer and his angels were created, power was given to them on various levels. But Lucifer, who wanted to be God, rebelled, became Satan. And there were many angelic beings who followed Lucifer in his rebellion. They thought they had sufficient wisdom to govern and to carry on the administration of creation without recourse to the authority and the wisdom of God. Well, look where that got us. I mean, look at the shape the world's in today. That didn't work out too well, did it? So, the universe is now engulfed in chaos as a result of the fall, as a result of sin. And so, when the fullness of time had come, God revealed his plan of salvation. God comes down to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of his death, a great number of sinners will be called out of the world and form the true church, the organism, not the organization. But the organism is only revealed through local organizations. You do understand that. So then God would exhibit these believers before the host of Satan as a demonstration of the true method of government and administration. The church, instead of seeking exaltation within themselves, realized they have no power within themselves. They realized that apart from God, they can do nothing. They realized that apart from God, they couldn't even be saved. They could not be forgiven. They could not be redeemed. All that the church accomplishes, we accomplish through total reliance upon the wisdom and the power of God. Not ourselves. Not through our own efforts. Not through our own methods. Not through our own cleverness. One of the problems that the, that the visible church has had throughout its existence is that it is so easy to build the church, at least the visible one, without God. I mean, today, if, if you've got a smoke machine, if you've got some lights and mirrors, if you've got a good band that plays music that's got a good beat and easy to dance to, now you can't get that image out of your head, can you? I know, put it there, it's terrible. But you can, build, you can build a great assembly. You can have thousands of people who come. And yet God has nothing to do with it at all. One of the great saints of the 20th century was a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. 
Tozer died in 1963. But in the early 60s, he wrote an essay called The Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. Every Christian should read it. And he said, the church today gets along quite well without the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of them now, all these years after Tozer has died, get along quite well without the Holy Spirit and without the Holy Scriptures. They don't need either one. They have a fine-tuned organization that spits out decisions and gathers great, great numbers of people. But the Bible says that God took from among men, men that were greatly inferior to angels, a company which accomplishes what the principalities and powers could never accomplish. Fallen angels sought to accomplish all by independence that we accomplish by total dependence. Lucifer said, I will exalt myself to heaven. I will be like the Most High. We say, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. There is a wisdom here that the world will never understand. The world says you've got to look out for number one. And the devil take the hindmost. And yet the way of the cross is not the way of self-seeking or self-advancement. That's what God was exhibiting, is exhibiting to the principalities and powers by saving men by grace through faith, not of works. He is saying, no, no, no. The way, the way to my throne, God says, is to come not by self-advancement, not by self-seeking, but by dying to self. By relying completely upon His grace. It is the way of the cross that overcomes evil. It is the way of the cross that leads men to true joy and true happiness. The fourth motive for the salvational grace of God is in order that in the coming ages God might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 7. Brings us back to Romans. For the exhibit of grace in believers is one of the elements that is contained in the reign of grace that Romans 5, 21 speaks of. The supreme purpose of God is to be realized through the salvation of men by grace alone. And that purpose dominates all of the divine undertakings in heaven and earth today. Everything is contributing solely to that end. That God might present us as trophies of His grace. That God has taken fallen, wretched, vile, depraved sinners and made them a body of redeemed people. Declared them to be righteous in the sight of God. All of the long centuries of human struggle were decreed for that one purpose. Men do not believe that. Men think there's going to be some great consummation of man's glory at the end. That we're all moving toward the time when men getting better and better and better and better and better will eventually achieve perfection 
all by themselves. But when this age is consummated, it will be clearly seen in heaven and on earth that all of the centuries of the history of man has been move, moving toward no other purpose than the realization of the supreme purpose of God in grace that he would save men by his grace alone. Nothing else. We speak often of a Christian worldview, but we also fail to define it. Here is a Christian worldview that is very well defined, namely, the history history is the field upon which the manifold grace of God and the salvation of sinners is displayed. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce used to compare history to a play. And he, he said the title of the play is God's Grace. And the angels are the audience. You know, Peter says that the angels long to look into salvation, matters pertaining to salvation. Satan is here to do everything he can to resist God and his purpose in the world. We are the actors. And the drama has been unfolding through the centuries. And there have been both major and minor characters on the stage. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Joshua, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul. Other dramatic persons throughout the Old and New Testament history. Again, there have been dominant players, minor walk-ons, strong people, weaklings. But each has been brought onto the stage to speak the words that God has written and to contribute to the ongoing movement of the drama. You and I are now actors in this long-running play that is titled God's Grace. Satan is attacking. The angels are straining forward to see what is going on. So here's the question. Are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God in you as you do your part and speak your lines? As the angels look, as Satan looks on, are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God in your life as you speak the part that God has given for you? As you act the part that God has given for you? What kind of contribution? are our lives making to the drama known as God's grace. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father.